episode number 54. In other words, life means you're free. You're free from the physical. That's what makes you alive. You're connected with eternity. Welcome to the Torah Podcast. Lessons from authentic Judaism. Get the tools and inspiration you need for personal growth. Hosted by Rabbi Mitterhoff. Shalom, this is Rabbi Eliyahu Mitterhoff with this week's Torah Podcast. The Torah portion of the week is going to be Amor, How to Increase Your Life Force, The Secret of the Jewish Vitality. We're going to have a powerful parable about the new goat. A great story about Rav Shach and peace in your home, the problem with criticism. And now, the Torah portion of the week, with novel ideas from the classic commentaries. In this week's Parsha, the verses say like this, Hashem said to Moses, Say to the Kohanim, the sons of Aaron, and you shall say to them, To a dead person he should not become impure among his people. This is the first commandment to the Kohanim of what they shouldn't do. They cannot go and impurify themselves by doing the mitzvah of burying the dead unless it is a blood relative or a spouse. The verses continue, They shall not make a bald spot on their heads, and they shall not shave the edge of their beard, and in their flesh they shall not scratch a scratch. We could explain what that means. And the next verse says, They shall not marry a woman who is a zona or a halala, or a woman who has been divorced from her husband. For each one is holy to God. And we're going to discuss why a Kohen cannot marry a divorcee. I want to first go back to last week's Parsha and tell you what Rav Shimshon Raphael Hirsch says on this verse. There's also a negative commandment for a regular person to not make a wound on himself. It says, You shall not make a wound in your flesh for one who has died, nor put a tattoo upon yourselves. I am God. So he wants to explain why we cannot make a wound in our flesh for the one who dies. This was the pagan custom, and it's forbidden for Jews. So he explains. He says, but wait a second. We do do Kriya. We rip our garments when somebody dies. It's a mitzvah to do Kriya, mitzvah deraisa from the Torah. When lower lane or a relative dies, you rip Kriya. So you see that you do rip your clothes. So what's the difference between ripping your clothes and putting a mark in your skin? So he says the renting or the ripping of clothes represents that the fact that this loved one has departed makes a rent in our world. In other words, it's a part of our world is now missing. And that's the mitzvah, to realize that, yes, now something is missing from your life. The loved one is gone. But to go one step further and to make a wound in your flesh, that, God forbid, we don't do. He says, no matter how dear and precious the person may be to us, no matter how much he means to us, his death must not negate or even diminish the value and the meaning of our own lives. Every man's life is important in its direct relationship to God. Every fiber of our physical existence, every spark of energy that is given to us, and every minute of our lives is sacred to God. As long as He ordains life for us in this world, we must preserve His service. And Adorah, but just the opposite. We should fill the gap that's now missing in our lives with our service to God. But the pagans, on the other hand, they would see this as the force of death that came into their lives. And therefore, they have to pay homage to the dark forces and somehow deflect the decree that's against them. So they would wound themselves in order that they shouldn't die, as if God is a God of death and destruction. But he said, for a Jew, that's totally forbidden. Throwing away your own life or even a fragment of your own life is not an act of respect, but it's a crime against God. 
In other words, God is the life force. The way that we deal with death is more life. Serving God more, doing more chesed, doing more tshuva, coming closer to God because God is a source of life. Now, this was all in the mitzvah of last week's parsha, which was talking about a non-Kohen. In this week's parsha, we take it one step further with the Kohanim, who are not at all allowed to be connected with death. Very interesting thing. The Kohanim, the Jewish priests, can have no connection to death, which is the exact opposite of the pagans. Their priests were involved with death. A Jewish priest can't go into a cemetery, even to this day. And when they go in the hospital, they should be very careful where the dead bodies are. And Rav Hirsch says here, Heathenism, both ancient and modern, tend to associate religion with death. The kingdom of God begins where man ends. Death or dying are the main manifestations of divinity. And therefore, God is a God of death. Where does God start? When you die. When you die, you go see God, right? That's the normal way of thinking about things. Most people, including myself, think that religion starts with death when you get to go to the next world. You got to hear this chiddish. It's unbelievable. And I also thought this way until I heard this tremendous chiddish, this new idea. You have to hear this. He says, God is the God of life. The most exalted manifestation of God is not in the power of death, which crushes strength and life. Rather, God reveals himself in the liberating and the vitalizing power of life which elevates man to free will and eternal life. Judaism teaches us not how to die, but how to live, so that even in life he may overcome death. And what's death? An unfree existence, enslavement to physical things, and moral weakness. And just the opposite. Our whole focus is on life and connection with life, which is moral freedom, a life of thought and will, creativity, achievement, and pleasure. This is simply unbelievable. In other words, death, death is connected with this world. The next world is life. But even life in this world is connected with the next world. Because all the life force comes from above. It's just the opposite of what you thought. People think people that die, they go to the next world. No, you're living in this world because of the life force that's coming into this world from the next world. And therefore, the Kohanim cannot be connected with death at all. Why? Because the Kohanim are connecting this world to the next world. And their job is to uplift this world, to connect this world to the world of life, eternal life. And look how he defines death. Death is an unfree existence, enslavement to the physical things, and moral weakness. In other words, the more connected you are to the physical world, the more dead you are. The more you're enslaved to your tithes, to your desires, it makes you more dead. What's the opposite of life? Moral freedom. A life of thought and will, creativity, achievement. In other words, life means you're free. You're free from the physical. That's what makes you alive. You're connected with eternity. This is unbelievable. And that's why the Kohen has to step away. He cannot be next to the mate, the dead person. And by doing that, they raise the banner of life besides the corpse. They awaken in people's consciousness the idea of life and remind them of moral freedom, of man's godly existence that's not subjugated to the bodily forces, that suppress all moral freedom. They reinforce in people's consciousness the idea of life. Our whole view of life is upside down. We think life is life is here. The physical, that's life. Just the opposite. Life is the spiritual. The life force comes from the spiritual. The more disconnected you are from the physical, the more alive you are, the more vital you are, the more energy you have. And death, what's death? Death's connected with the body, with the physical. And that's why the verses continue. It says in verse 17, Speak to Aaron, saying, Any man of your offspring, 
throughout the generations who has a bodily defect shall not draw near and bring an offering to God. A Kohen, if he's going to serve in the temple, cannot have any physical defect. It's called a mum, an externally visible body defect. Can't be missing an arm, an eye. He has to be shalem, complete. Again, the same idea. God is connected with shlemus, completeness, perfection. Not defects in the physical reality. He says, the altar was not built so a weary man could crawl up to its heights and find consolation in his sorrow and miraculous healing for his illness. Rather, life in its completeness and its freshness and its strength, that's what should be on God's altar. The whole person, the whole being. It shouldn't take a calamity for a Jew to come close to God, a broken life or a fragment of life. One cannot attain a full life that is worthy of God's nearness unless his aspiration springs from the standpoint of life that is whole in its completeness. It's a healthy religion. We're coming from a healthy place. Our connection to God has to be healthy. That is the connection to God, because God is a life force. It's the physical world that's deficient. It's the physical world that is tame, impure. All these things come from the physical. The Orachayim explains in this week's Parsha that corporality, Gashmias, opposes fusion with spirituality by definition, by its very nature. This opposition between the spiritual and the physical is more powerful than the opposition between fire and water. The physicality of this world does not go together with spirituality. But up until now, we thought that life, life was this world. And the source of life is this world. It's not true. That's nature. That's Teva. The source of life is coming from above. And if we want to have spirituality, we have to have the proper relationship to the physical world. Everything in its place. I want to bring the Shem Mishmu who explains, also in this week's Parsha, you have a love in the Torah that an Onen cannot bring a sacrifice. Who's that? Someone the first day, Lo'eleinu, if one of his relatives died, and he didn't bury his dead yet, a person in that position cannot bring a sacrifice to the base of Megdash. He brings the verse to Hillam, serve God with joy and come before him with singing. A person in this bereaved state, he's incomplete. So he can't bring a shlamim, which means completeness. He can't bring a sacrifice of completeness because he's incomplete. He brings a Zohar that says, if a person transgresses a mitzvah, and he repents before his master, how should he appear before God? Surely he needs to demonstrate a broken and depressed spirit. But where's the joy? Where's the singing? If he cries, this is best of all. But where's the joy? In what way shall it be rectified? By the Kohanim and the Levim, who will make up the joy in the singing for him. In other words, even if a person, <laughs> even if a person did a sin, and now he has to come back to the base of Migdash, and he has a broken heart, it still requires that it's an environment of singing and joy. Unbelievable. The Kohanim, who are supposed to connect this world to the spiritual world, has to be done through singing and joy. Because there is no connection to the spiritual without singing and without joy. And that's why he explains that a Kohen can have no connection with death. It is inappropriate for the Kohen to come in contact with death. Because it's the opposite of his very being. The Kohen strives to join the physical and the spiritual, and death breaks them apart. It brings the Arizal. Listen to this. Prior to death, the person is attacked by Kokosatuma. Before a person dies, Lo'alenu, these forces of impurity come into his body. The holy soul which rests within the victim cannot bear the association with these forces, and therefore it departs the body just to alleviate its discomfort. How does a person die? These forces of impurity come into him and he can't take it. He has to leave. His neshama has to go out. 
That's how it works. Because death is only connected with the physical body. And like Rev Hurst said, death is connected with the inability to control yourself. Person is running all day after his tithes, all kinds of things. He's actually running after death, not life. I never understood why death was connected with alcohol. They put subliminal meshes of death connected with alcohol. The answer is death is connected with alcohol. Because the more a person goes after his tithes, his physical desires, he's running really after death, not after life. When a person runs after mitzvahs, when he controls himself, when he has moral freedom, like first said, when he's free, that's connected with the life force. And we think that life is having a great time, having fun. It's true, enjoying life is having fun. But within the framework of Torah and mitzvahs, God gave us the way to life. Now listen to this. The Shem Yishmo explains why a Kohen cannot marry a divorcee, which is true to this day. These halachas apply today. A Kohen cannot go into a graveyard, and a Kohen cannot marry a divorced woman. We know that man and woman are opposite. And Chazal tells us, Ish v'isha, if you take away the letters of God's name, which is the Yud and the Hey, you're left with Eish. In other words, if you do not have God in the relationship, the couple will burn each other up. So he says, a divorced couple are left with a sense of division and disunity. Thus, a divorced woman is no longer in a spiritual position to marry a Kohen, whose very being demands contact only with unifying forces. He brings the Gemara Pesachim that says, when two divorced people get married, there are four views in the bed. Since a Kohen's whole job is to unify, is to connect with the spiritual world, he can't marry a woman who was divorced, who became disconnected. It's a little bit harsh, but that's his job. So you see that the Kohen has to be connected with unity, with life, and be totally disconnected from the forces of death, destruction, or even rejection. Because all those forces are the antithesis of God, who is the life force. I want to bring Rev Schwab, who also speaks on this week's Parsha. The verse says like this, An ox, lamb, or goat, when it is born, shall be with his mother for seven days. An ox or a lamb and its offspring shall not slaughter in one day. When you sacrifice a thanksgiving offering to Hashem, that will be favorably accepted before you. And you shall not profane my holy name. But I will be sanctified among Bnei Yisrael. Speak to Bnei Yisrael and say to them the appointed times of Hashem, you shall proclaim them as his holy assembly as he is my appointed times. And you have all the different holidays, all the Jewish holidays are listed after that. These pesukim are the pesukim that we read for all the Yom Tovim, all the Jewish holidays. But he has a question. When we read it, why do we bring these pesukim before? It seems to be unrelated. First of all, you have the law of an ox and a lamb that it must be with his mother for at least seven days. Only on the eighth day is it eligible for a sacrifice. Then you have the prohibition that you can't slaughter the cow and its mother on the same day. And then you have the Thanksgiving offerings, which is supposed to be brought when a person survives something dangerous. Then you have Kiddush Hashem, that a Jew has to sacrifice his life, not to do a vote of Zara, damim, not to kill, and not to do znus, not to live with another woman if he's forced to do so. He has to die instead of do those things. That's Kiddush Hashem. So what does all that have to do with the holidays? And then we bring the holidays. So why do we bring those pesukim when we read for the holidays? Why do we bring those pesukim when we read on the holidays? They seem to be disconnected. There's enough pesukim, enough verses on the holidays that we don't need to read that part. So he wants to explain that the pesukim that come before the mitzvah Kiddush Hashem, that a person has to sacrifice himself, give value to life. Because what's the mitzvah of sacrificing yourself if you don't value life itself? The fact that the calf has to live for at least eight days before you sacrifice it, that shows the value of life. 
and that you cannot kill the mother and the baby in the same day. That shows genocide. Again, value for life. And bring a sacrifice and bring the sacrifice, a Thanksgiving offering when you were saved from a dangerous situation. You're valuing life. So if a person is called, God forbid, in a situation with the Nazis or who knows what, where he has to give up his life, it should be the most precious thing that he's giving up, which is life. So here's the Kiddush. And where does a person really get the value of life and the strength in order to sacrifice himself? He said, from the next passage, from the, from the holidays, from all the Jewish holidays, the connection to Hashem. That's where we get our life force. That's where we get our connection to life. All the Jewish holidays connect us with life. That's where we restore our batteries, he says. Because by living the Jewish lifestyle and going through all the holidays of the year, we connect with life. We connect with God, and God is a life force. Not the force of death, God forbid, destruction, that the next world is only after you die. This world is where you die. This world is where you have to be careful of death. This world is where you have to protect yourself from sin. Because the more you connect with the bodily forces, the more you're connecting with the forces of death and darkness. The Torah is light. The Torah is vitality. The Torah is life. And we learn this from the Kohanim. The Kohanim cannot go to a cemetery. The Kohanim are commanded a second time not to mar their bodies. The Kohanim cannot have a physical blemish. And all these things are there to put into consciousness of every Jew that Torah is a life force. Mitzvahs are life. And the holidays are a chance to connect up with God and be connected with life, eternal life. Here's a powerful This week's Parsha speaks about Yom Kippur. The verse says, A day of atonement, it shall be for you a holy assembly. So one time a poor man brought a goat for his wife. His wife was all excited. She says, now we're going to have milk to give the kids. She didn't delay for a moment. She went outside and took a pitcher and started to milk the goat. But to her disappointment, the goat didn't give any milk. She began to cry. Her husband says, don't cry, please. The goat's probably tired. Let it rest a little bit. Give him some hay to eat, and I'm sure we'll give us some milk later on. That was the muscle. The Magi Medumna says, the Nimshaw is, sometimes also a person, he repents. He regrets his sins. He even tortures his soul in atonement. Then right away, he wants to feel and know what his efforts have reaped, as if he was forgiven right away. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, wait a little bit. Let's see what this fasting and regret has done for you. It's time for Great Stories About Great Rabbis. The Ramam and Sefer HaMitzvah and the Sefer HaChinuch both learn that included in the mitzvah that a Kohen is only allowed to become impure for his relative. From there we learn that a Jew also has to mourn his relative. And he has to sit Shiva seven days. So one time Rav Shach was sitting Shiva for his wife and Rav Yehuda Adas from Bayat Vagan came to visit him to make a Shiva call. This was on a Sunday and Rav Shach said to him, that he was thinking of going to give his shear, which he gives on Tuesday, in the middle of his shiva period. He opened up the Shulchan Aruch and showed Rav Adas, a mourner who is needed by the many, from whom many learn, is permitted to teach them Torah, even in the middle of the shiva. Rav Shach asked them humbly, what's your opinion? So Rav Adas was a little bit surprised of how could Rav Shach have the koach, the energy, to give a shear in the middle of his mourning? And he answered him, he says, maybe the community will not understand. And they'll see it as disrespectful as compared to Kavod Torah, honor for the Torah. So Shach said, you're right. It's better not to give the lecture. 
For several months after that, the Rev Shach wrote a letter to somebody. He said, It's quite a while that I haven't written you. I'm sure you know the reason is because it's so difficult for me to concentrate after I've lost my wife because I have still not recovered from the anguish. So you can imagine how much Mesiris Nefesh Rav Shach had to give a sheer be'iyun in the yeshiva the same week of his shiva. But he was willing to do it for the sake of the yeshiva. Learn to give, love, and communicate. This is Peace in Your Home. Rav Simcha Cohen speaks about criticism. He says, when a man is going in the street looking for a certain address, he's grateful for anyone to point out which direction he should go in, and if he's going in the wrong direction. But when someone tells him a personal thing that he's going in the wrong direction in his life, so there's tremendous resistance, and the defenses go up immediately. He may even come to hate the person who said that to him. Few, though, do appreciate criticism, as if it was a gift. King Solomon said, admonish the wise man and he'll love you. But on the other hand, very few people know how to give criticism. The Gemara in Archim says, said Eliezer ben Azariah, I would be amazed to find that if there's anyone who could give criticism today. So the Mara wants to explain that it takes tremendous wisdom to give criticism. You have to speak pleasantly, and you have to speak reasonably, and you have to speak in a way that's going to penetrate the other person's heart. It's very hard to give constructive criticism and very easy to give destructive criticism. So in a marriage, what happens is the two people are very different, and they don't realize their differences. They feel misunderstood. They look at their spouse as if they're doing something hurtful to them. It might have been actually something that the spouse was doing in order to help the other person. But they don't see exactly where the other person's coming from. So in order to work at the marriage, you have to know how to tell the other person what's bothering you. But you have to do it in the right way. What usually happens, (laughs) as soon as you try to point something out, they say, who are you to talk? The defense mechanisms come up. If she says to her husband, you're not giving my parents the proper respect. He says back to her, you're so perfect. If she says to her, your new dress is a little bit high, she says, well, you don't pray with a minion every time, do you? So no one likes to hear criticism. And sometimes there's criticism even without the person speaking. He gave an example of this guy, Marty, who went to a Jewish seminar to learn Jewish values. The next thing he shows up in his office with a hat and sits at the beginning of the beard. He tells everybody he wants to be called Mordechai, not Marty. Everybody gets upset. What is this fundamentalist? They're, they're upset with him. But he didn't criticize anybody. He says, yes, he did. His actions criticized. The fact that he has his new lifestyle, by definition, means he rejects their lifestyle. So it's as if he's criticizing them without even saying anything. And in the house, criticism can frustrate one of our most basic needs, to be loved and accepted the way we are. We expect that our spouse to accept us the way we are and overlook our faults. Even though we have the faults, it's true. But we want the other person to overlook our faults. We want emotional support. Because of our weaknesses. And we tell the other person, that's the way I am. And it's very hard for us to change our habits. Physical habits and ideological habits. He gave an example of one guy trying to convince his friend to come to a lecture on Jewish values. So the friend says, who's giving it? He says, oh, a famous rabbi. He says, no, I don't want to come. I don't feel like coming. He pressed him, nope, I don't want to come. He said, why not? It'd be interesting. It might do you some good. He says, exactly, that's exactly the point. I don't want to be convinced. I'm afraid I'm going to be convinced. In other words, even if he feels that it's right, he doesn't want to change his ideological habit. So it doesn't matter what the other person is saying. They're just saying, that's the way I am. Nobody wants to hear about change. He brings a safe for your car that says, the crying of a newborn baby is all about a lifestyle change. That's why he's crying. Came out of the womb into this world. It's difficult. 
And surely, if we give the criticism out of anger, it's not going to work. Most of the time when we criticism, it comes up from a buildup of small events that are happening in the house. Then the person explodes. So when they see that other person's face or they see a little bit of anger, they're going to reject the person. On the other hand, the person could be reading an article about this exact problem that the spouse is bringing up. And the person will read the article again. He'll be interested. He'll look at it. But that's because he's under control. There's no one else pressing him. And it brings a riot from the Torah itself. It says, when Hashem rebuked Aaron and Miriam, because they were speaking about Moses who was neglecting his wife, God explained to them, listen, nah, please listen to my words. If there be a prophet among you in a vision, I will make myself known to him in a dream and I will speak to him. Not so with Moses my servant. In all my house he is trusted. Mouth to mouth do I speak to him. And the image of God he sees. Why did you not fear to speak against my servant Moses? And only after that the Torah says, and God's anger flared against them. At first he told Miriam and Aaron, calmly and quietly, what they did wrong. He even used the word, nah, please, please listen. Politely, he said. And the Mizrahi says on this, he spoke with them softly. For had he spoke with them angrily, his words would not have been listened to. And who are we talking about? Aaron and Miriam. They wouldn't have listened to Hashem. If Hashem was angry with them and, and gave them rebuke with anger, they wouldn't have listened. And who is giving them a rebuke? The master of the universe. So surely we're not going to listen to rebuke from anyone if they're giving it to us with anger. He says, sometimes one of the couples comes to me. I screamed at him. I yelled at him. I told him how hurt I was. He says, yeah, of course. That's why he's not listening. Because the person pays attention to the tone and the anger and doesn't listen to the content. So next week, Bizrat Hashem, we're going to speak about the right way to criticize. That's it for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share it with your friends. You can go to TorahPodcast.com. And there you can find the link to iTunes to leave a rating and review. Please do me a personal favor and leave a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Your voicemail could be featured on the Torah Podcast. Just visit RabbiMeterhoff.com to ask questions or leave comments.